1: So it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about a possible bond market route, that all of the central banks were getting more hawkish and that bonds globally, government bonds, were going to all sell off. And now we see a rally yet again. Jim Vogel, who is the interest rate strategist at FTN Financial in Memphis, Tennessee, joins us uh, now to explain whether this rally can continue. So Jim, today we got some uh, disappointing CPI numbers, inflation numbers. We also got uh, retail sales that were not that great. And consumer sentiment also came in below expectations. And now people are saying it's going to be lower for longer again. How much can this cause bonds to rally over the near near term?
2: Lisa, is whether the curve starts flattening again. That was the big news out of June, and we lost that in July. So far, we still have a steeper curve. Until we see 30s begin to pick up and do better and participate fully in the rally, we're not going to get back down necessarily to 225 on the 10-year.
1: Well, wait, so, so just... Uh... Broadening out a little bit. In other words, you're saying that there was this steep uh, curve steepening. In other words, people were uh, increasing their expectations of longer-term growth, of, of of lower near-term rates and higher longer-term rates. And you're not seeing that stop due to these disappointing inflation numbers.
2: Correct. So today's big star on the Treasury curve is the seven-year. It's, it's rare that the seven-year is necessarily going to be the leading barometer of what happens next for interest rates. So we've got to see the 30 trade back below two and seven, eighths.
1: So why isn't it?
2: There are... Still lingering positions that uh, need to get out of some uh, incorrect longs coming into this month. And so we have about two weeks of not a lot of news for people to try to rebalance their positions so that they can participate in the long end. And we can perhaps see a rally there uh, that allows us to, again, trade the 10 year back down another five basis points and truly get back into rally territory as we move into August.
0: What kind of chances would you give for that to happen?
2: We're under 40 percent at this point uh, because the ECB story, even though it doesn't appear every single day, uh, is going to constantly hit the headlines as we approach August, particularly now that Draghi is going to be speaking at Jackson Hole.
0: I just wonder if you could comment on something that uh, my colleague, our colleague Tom Keene, was talking about earlier, that the president, uh, President Donald Trump, his barometer seems to be the stock market, not the bond market. How do you come out on that?
2: The bond market has detached from fiscal policy really basically starting in May. So I think Tom's correct. The the bond market is really uh, looking globally now and not focused on Washington because the general opinion about whether we can get significant legislation passed in 2017 has fallen off the radar.
1: You know, earlier uh, in the program, we were talking about possible contingency plans should the U.S. come up against uh, the debt ceiling and fail to pass some measure to lift uh, the threshold. And I'm wondering, with that kind of political pressure, is that on your radar? Do you think that that is something, a material risk that could cause a bond market sell-off that's sort of unrelated to some of these broader economic indicators?
2: Yes, it certainly can. If you go back and you look at the volatility, there are few events over the last 10 years that quite match the debt ceiling fight of 2011. And then the small government shutdown or brief government shutdown in the fall of 2013. Those are always going to be major events uh, that cause people to pull back from treasuries, not because they necessarily see long-term risk, but just simply they've got to have the information of how that's going to resolve.
1: And talking is keeping on the theme of political influence on the bond market, I also have to wonder right now when we see the healthcare care debate uh, raging and the fact that the Senate GOP cannot get a bill together that they know they can pass, does this sort of remove any promise of fiscal stimulus and has the specter of fiscal pr- stimulus been completely removed already from the bond market? In other words, are bond traders pretty much expecting nothing in terms of fiscal stimulus at this point?
2: The stock market still has about a 30 to 40% confidence that we're going to get some sort of fiscal stimulus. You continue to see that chatter around equities. There, and so our view is that it's probably still somewhat in the, in the bond market, but not in the near term. And so now any impact that might improve the economy and therefore really have a big impact on rates would not occur until the second half of 2018.
1: And the impact would be rates higher. So in other words, if there is no fiscal stimulus whatsoever, that will actually put a damper on yields and they could potentially go lower, or stay where they are more, uh, longer than people expect.
2: It would certainly allow uh, nervousness about the Fed's shrinking balance sheet to calm down a little bit if we don't have a stimulus bill that looks in some sort of shape to pass uh, by the uh, middle of the fourth quarter.
0: Do you think everyone's prepared for that? Are they positioned
2: for it? The bond market generally is, but there's so many things that are happening with regards to uh, deposit growth and how excess reserve management will take place among the in the national banking system that it's really hard to say that the entire balance sheet uh, plan is, is fully integrated into prices right now. We think the, the level of, say, the 10-year accurately reflects it. But in terms of all the other changes that are going to take place, there's still a lot to learn.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining us. Jim Vogel is interest rate strategist for FTN Financial, joining us from Memphis, Tennessee.
1: Janet Yellen, chair of the Federal Reserve, just finished up uh, what could be possibly her last congressional uh, half year testimony uh, yesterday, and uh, what she said was largely uh, pretty consistent with what people were expecting. uh, But there were were some little uh, moments of surprise. Uh, For more context, I want to bring in Bob Eisenbeis, Vice Chairman and Chief Monetary Economist at Cumberland Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. He also was formerly uh, the Director of Research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. So, Bob, what was your number one takeaway from this two-day testimony?
3: Well, my takeaway was that uh, things seem to be, as far as the FOMC is concerned, on track for a gradual return of interest rates to a more normal position and probably a move on the portfolio to normalize uh, beginning perhaps in September uh, I think that's the most likely date at this juncture.
1: Um, Wait, well, hold on. That's was... actually important, right? So if they begin uh, allowing some of the, their holdings to run off starting in September, uh, they have a pretty pretty determined preset course of how much they let to roll off. And under some estimates, that would mean that uh, more than $400 billion of securities could roll off uh, in the two years ended at the end of 2019. Is that what you're expecting?
3: Yeah, they've, they've got baby steps, uh, about two hundred and forty up billion up through the end of 2018, and that's really where my focus is on this point in time, uh, because we'll get a pretty good sense of what the market reaction is likely to be and what the Treasury does. I mean, it depends on whether the Treasury replaces those securities or not as to what the ultimate impact would be. I did find it interesting that I thought that Janet Yellen tended to put herself in the group of people, and there's a wide range of views on the FOMC, in that group of people who felt that there would not be much of an impact as far as uh, Treasury yields were concerned.
0: Bob, I want to pick up on something you said because you bring in this idea of the people at the Federal Reserve. You have experience with the people at the Federal Reserve, uh, formerly Executive Vice President and Director of Research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Uh, You mentioned 2018. Who's going to be at the Federal Reserve in that Board of Governors table in 2018?
3: That that is the $64,000 question. Oh, come on. There's a
0: little bit of inflation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, we're, we have four people right now. We have one new nominee uh, uh, from the Trump administration. Uh, Stan Fisher's term is up in 2018 as well. So this is going to be another. Give
0: session. us some names. Come on. We're going to I'm pushing you here.
3: Oh, well, I mean, I, who would I like to see? Or well, who, who do, I mean, do you think? I mean, do you think that one?
0: Janet Yellen will get the nod?
3: I think it's questionable whether she'll get the nod or not, and it's more likely we'll get some sort of a business person in, or um, someone like a former head of the Council of Economic Advisors, a John Taylor, uh, all of those would be uh, uh, good potential people to have on the board uh, uh, as, as, as potential. Uh, How I about think, as a leader? Well, I think John Taylor would be. Would be my first pick to, but uh, Glenn Hubbard would be certainly right there uh, along with it in terms of someone who's a, a top-rate economist and and knows about policy and, and understands policy.
1: So Gary Cohn has also been floated. He's currently the uh, uh, chief economist for President Trump and former CEO at Goldman Sachs. How do you think uh, his influence uh, would change the Fed?
3: If he were chairman, you mean? Yeah. Um. Well, I think he would bring a, a little bit more of a market's focus, uh, maybe a shorter-term view, because most of the people on Wall Street tend to have, uh, you know, a long term is uh, the end of the day.
1: Well, would would uh, he be more uh, hawkish? I think that that's that's the question that people are wondering. Uh,
3: that's that's a good question, and, and I don't have a good sense uh, of where he would come out on that. Uh, right now, with inflation being where it is. Uh, I'm not sure what hawkish really means uh, because you know we don't really have an inflation an inflation problem at this point. So, and if, if, the, if there's an inflation problem, it's that people are concerned that inflation is too low. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with 1.4 percent inflation. I think it's perhaps diverting attention at this juncture and uh, uh, creating some potential risks by a, attempting to keep the economy uh, overheating. Uh, Having said that, um, uh, the path that the FOMC has laid out seems to be a reasonable one at this point as far as rates are concerned, at least from my perspective.
1: Bob, earlier uh, you were saying that uh, Chair Yellen puts herself in the camp not thinking that the uh, bond roll-off, will, their balance sheet roll-off, will affect Treasury yields all that much. Do you think that they're accurate in that assessment?
3: Well, they have essentially uh, really moderated what the total roll-off would otherwise be and have taken, I think, a very conservative view when it comes to the maturing of the securities. Um, because uh, right now, mortgage-backed security paydowns have been running around $20 billion a month, uh, and obviously they're going very slow uh, on that side. Uh, And the rest of the securities uh, are, you know, they're, they're really taking baby steps, as far as I'm concerned, because of the uncertainty about what the actual impacts will be, both in terms of impacts on interest rates, but also what, if any, implications market responses would have for the subsequent path of movements in the uh, target
0: rate. Bob, uh, talk about uh, market moves or, or consequences. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase shares down one and a half percent. Morgan Stanley down one percent. Uh, you know, you, Citibank down three quarters of a percent. Bank of America uh, down two percent today. Uh, what do you take away from today's uh, releases about banks and about fi- investing in financials?
3: Well, financials have done very well. So there's probably just a little bit of a a reassessment, uh, perhaps because of concern about the extent to which regulation and the Fed, one of the things that Janet Yellen talked about was she was not in favor of removing a lot lot of the regulations that uh, a lot of the financial institutions have been arguing for. So, uh, you know, to the extent that, uh, she's for keeping a lot of those regulations. That's essentially a negative as far as the financials are concerned.
0: I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Bob Eisenbeis is vice chairman and chief monetary economist at Cumberland Advisors. They are based in Sarasota, Florida.
1: We got retail sales today, and they were not great. Retail sales unexpectedly dropped for a second month in June. And not only did they drop, but it wasn't just autos. It was across the board. It's leaving a lot of people wondering what the future of retailers will bring. Seema Shah joins us now. She's Consumer Discretionary Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And we're also joined by Christian Magoon, Chief Executive Officer of Amplify Investments in Colorado Springs. Seema, let's start with you. Retail Mm -hmm. sales unexpectedly (coughs) dropping. What was driving that?
4: Um, there was a deceleration, as you mentioned, sort of across the board. I think what was most notable was that uh, May was weaker than expected. So I think maybe people thought there'd be some a rebound, in that non-store sales, So online decelerated their growth from last month. So that's kind of interesting. It still was up, but the
1: growth wasn't. No, but this is important because it sort of suggests something more with the consumer than simply a shipping shop. I mean, personally, I,
4: you and I have discussed that before. Other than building materials, which was flat last month, But up this month, I haven't seen a lot of strength across the board in any particular category. And uh, we were talking about Target. Target was better announced that sales might be better than expected for Q2, but that likely comes at the risk of margin and the investment they've made in price. So maybe people are willing to buy either online or in stores, but it's very price competitive. And so I think that's the risk and you're seeing that.
0: Well, Sima, you know, I was looking at the stock charts, and I want to mm-hmm. bring in Christian Magoon on this mm-hmm. as well, because I was looking at the stock chart of Target. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was almost an $80 stock uh mm-hmm. last fall all right just last fall it is now on sale at 53 dollars <laughs> uh macy's was a, a nearly a 44 45 dollar stock in november of 2016 it's also on sale at 22 dollars and 23 cents uh, right now mm-hmm. do they need saviors does someone have to come in because i want christian to, to comment about the potential for amazon spending even more money but sima what what do you think
4: um, I don't know if they need savings. You have to separate the fundamentals and the stock reaction. So if there's any good news, these guys jump up. But well, they the lost
0: fifty percent of, 50% of their value. They lost
4: percent. So people try. You know, they 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 think, oh, hey, this is a turn. And but at, to me, when I look at the competitive landscape, I don't see any upside for many of these guys. Not particularly Target or Macy's. But I, I just think, like, look at the way that Amazon is become. I think it's a change in behavior. It's not just that. It's one or the other. People want a combination. But as you get used to spending online and you have it, it's your behavior, it's on your phone and you're able they right. get the last mile through Whole Foods. It becomes increasingly difficult for other people to compete.
1: Christian, you said that you think that Amazon could buy a player like Macy's. Can you explain why this would be a beneficial move for them?
4: Yeah, I
5: think it'd be a strategic acquisition because Amazon is trying to, as Seema said, kind of get that last little, um, you know, few feet into physically being on on people's minds. Whole Foods is a a great example of adding, you know, 430 physical locations. Macy's would be another interesting example of adding, you know, close to 700 locations. And this gives Amazon a way to not just showroom things like uh, Macy's does today, but also as a delivery center, place to have storage lockers, potentially have autonomous vehicles go in and out of, drone delivery, etc. And then also, obviously, Amazon has a great uh, technology base, whether it's kind of these voice-enabled uh, devices or just um, their kind of uh, ever-present online um, effort to promote some of these brands Macy's has. So I think that physical footprint is going to be important. I believe SEMA uh, is exactly right. It's not going to be just online. It's not going to be just brick-and-mortar. It's going to be omnichannel, and Amazon's probably in the cat seat to figure out that
0: Well, you know, Seema, there's a report today, and and, uh, Christian, you can come in on this as well. There's a report from Goldman Sachs saying that, uh, well, they put Walmart on their uh, conviction buy list, and uh, the stock is up 1.3%, and they said that uh, Walmart is well-positioned for any competition with Amazon, I guess also in reference to the fact that they're going to have to absorb uh, that uh, Whole Foods acquisition. Seema, what about Walmart?
4: Walmart to me is a little bit of a different customer. It's a lower end on average. I mean, it's not really a direct competitor of Whole Foods, I would argue. I mean, no, no, the... I understand, but, right, competitive but as it, as with it relates Amazon. to Amazon, yeah, Walmart has the stores, but they don't have the back end infrastructure online as well developed as Amazon. And as we've seen from multiple re- retailers, that seems to be the harder part to execute yeah. versus getting having the online and that infrastructure correct and the logistics and then buying the bricks and mortar. So I think that is more that is a bigger that's a, a something that's they're going to struggle to get like they've made all these small acquisitions like Jet and Mod. You know, mod cloth and things like that. But how do you put those together, and how do you have that seamless experience that people had, say, like on Amazon Prime Day, where the site was so quick to load and to still, you know, get the deliveries out?
1: That part to me is very
4: hard to replicate. So,
1: Christian, I want to I want to go back to that image that that you portrayed of Amazon buying Macy's and having these stores with drones flying over them, and autonomous cars, and a Jetsons, you know, uh, family member flying overhead. I, I'm just trying <laughs> to figure out you know uh, in this image are we getting back to the same model that kind of is failing right now for a lot of the retailers which is uh, that if people are ordering online they don't need the physical location why store up
5: yeah, I think it's a, it's kind of hybrid uh, the, uh, based off the current brick and mortar model. And the, the hybrid nature is having those physical locations might allow you to do just-in-time delivery of 30 minutes or an hour. Um, you know, if grocery uh, the grocery industry is truly going to be disruptive, you need to be able to have something like a same-day delivery service and physical locations in, in these major communities like a Macy's or a Whole Foods offer uh, is going to help that out. In addition, there's a, a large Large, you know population growing city city population that may need actually a storage locker or a different place besides their you know place of uh, where they're living or their um, actual place of employment to actually go out and pack, pack, uh, pick up um, packages that are, are delivered in, in a locker and then I think finally um, it's it's hard to uh, ignore the impulse buying that we, we do pim and Lisa when we're walking through a store and Amazon is missing some of that I think we do some of the impulse buying online but obviously when you're physical store, I think that increases um, kind of the likelihood that you could pick up some other things. And uh, I think that'll be beneficial to Amazon and other on- online retailers once they have a little bit more of a physical footprint. Right.
0: Well, they've got to get into the store in the first place. Um, just a note, the average Prime member at Amazon spends $1,300 on the online shopping platform annually. They spend $1,300. non prime members, they spend $700. So nearly double the amount. And this is a big deal when it comes to Amazon prime selling day, right, Sima? Because it's not just about the product. It's about signing people up for that $99. On yes, rent.
4: because I think that part a of what makes card. them so defensible against other people who mimic their online platform is the fact that it is a marketplace. It's prime. And it, it's almost part of people's behavior. It's on your phone. And that makes people, I think, at a certain price, even le- at a certain level, less price sensitive and than, it, it, than you would be typically, because it's just so convenient. And you don't really need more than one Amazon Prime membership like in, in a, a, for a competitor. And I think that's what makes their first mover advantage so powerful.
0: Thank you very much. Seema Shaw, Consumer Discretionary Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Christian Magoon, Chief Executive of Amplify Investments. Well, we want to know, that they have to go to the blackboard again? Stephen Dennis is our Senate reporter for Bloomberg News, and he joins us from Capitol Hill in Washington, and he can be followed on Twitter at Stephen T. Dennis, and he's got two N's. Well, uh, are we going to get another rewrite, Stephen?
6: Yeah, I think they're going to have to put together a package for moderates. There's a bunch of holdout moderates, about a handful, that come from Medicaid expansion states, they didn't really get much in yesterday's rewrite. And uh, I think over the weekend before Monday or shortly thereafter getting a CBO score on this bill, uh, I think Mitch McConnell's probably going to have to dig back deep into the leftover pocket change in his pocket and start spending some of the extra money that he has to uh, – get these senators back on board.
1: Stephen, when you talk with uh, analysts and and policy wonks on Washington, uh, on on Capitol Hill, what do they say about the likelihood that Republicans can come together in any way for this or whether uh, at some point they'll have to reach out across the aisle to Democrats and try to do something a little more bipartisan?
6: Uh, I think right now we're basically on a knife edge where uh, McConnell is very much trying to get to a deal, and if, you, if there's an uh, if there's a point of optimism here and momentum potentially is that after this bill came out, there were two hard no's, and then there were 50 not hard anything, right? So you had uh, – an, uh, any one of those 50 other senators could have tanked this bill yesterday, could have put out a statement saying I won't vote for it. Or I need massive changes or whatever. And they held their fire. And so that means, uh, you know, if you, one way of looking at it is that there's 50 senators who still want to get to yes. And there's a lot of time between now and Tuesday, frankly, to get those senators to yes. So there's going to be a major effort uh, today, tomorrow, over the weekend to lobby these senators, to lobby their governors. Uh, Mike Pence is going to be in Providence today, lobbying senators like Brian Sandoval, a key center, a key governor from Nevada.
0: Right. He's at the he National has... Governors Association meeting.
6: Yes. Yes. So the, the governors are all in Providence. Mike Pence is up there. It, you know, he tweeted yesterday. One of the things he wants to do is talk to them about the health care bill. And it's no secret that if they don't get Brian Sandoval's support in Nevada, They're probably not going to get Dean Heller's support uh, here in the Senate. And without Dean Heller, this bill goes down. So they need Dean Heller, Medicaid expansion state. They need uh, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, Medicaid expansion state. Rob Portman in Ohio, Medicaid expansion state. Shelley Moore Capito in West Virginia, Medicaid expansion state. None of them are on board yet. They need to get them all on board uh, before they vote next week. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me to square the comments that all of those people have made to me in the hallways over the last several months with supporting anything like this bill. You know, they've all said they don't want to vote for something that has millions more people uninsured. Well, I don't think the CBO is going to come out on Monday and say this is going to score that much better right. on the uninsurance rate.
1: You know, Stephen, I want, to, I want to really clarify one point because we hear so much with respect to to uh, the Russia intrigue and the potential scandal. Uh, The Boston Globe now is reporting that a Russian-American lobbyist uh, confirmed that he attended a June 2016 meeting with uh, Donald Trump Jr., uh, billed as part of a Russian government effort to help the Republican campaign. Does this matter at all when it comes to really the important stuff of making this country work, like the health care bill and like the subsequent uh, tax bill that we have not seen anything drafted on, but everybody's waiting for? Does it matter?
6: I I think it it doesn't matter that much. You know, when I talk to senators, when I see them in the hallways, uh, they are very busy. They're carrying briefing books. They are crunching numbers. They're talking to their governors all about health care right now. Or maybe some of them are working on the tax bill. You know, the Gang of Six, uh, which is the Speaker, Mitch McConnell and the Senate, Uh, Gary Cohn, uh, Council of Economic Advisors, and uh, Steve Mnuchin, uh, and the the Ways and Means and Finance Chairs, they've been meeting regularly. They met this week on tax reform. So those meetings behind closed doors are happening, Uh, numbers are, you know, papers being exchanged, and and, and I I think – It's it's not clear that Russia is really the problem. The problem here is the politics of this bill are terrible. That's the
1: problem. Well, Stephen, real quick, when they go back, if they do have an August recess, which it doesn't seem like they're going to, but if they were to go back, what would they hear from constituents?
6: Well, right now, this bill, this health care bill has been pulling it around, you know, anywhere between 12 and 25 percent. That's not so hot. Now, it's possible that it gets a little bit more popular at the very end as they appeal to moderates. And they, one of the things that they did is they took out the tax cuts for the wealthy from this right. bill, which was the number one argument the Democrats were making, is that they were cutting the poor to give money to the rich in sort of a reverse Robin Hood. Right. So maybe this bill gets a little more popular, but you know, if they go home with empty-handed, they're going to hear it from their own conservative base. Right. So they're going to hear it from both sides.
1: Stephen Dennis, thank you so much for joining us and for that perspective. Stephen Dennis is our Senate reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Capitol Hill in Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.